Radio Mano Papachango. episode 500 and something of Tangentially Speaking. This episode is with my friend Rick Beato. This is his third appearance on the podcast, I believe, but it's special because it's the first time that Rick and I met each other in person, and um, it was a really special experience for me. I, I feel as much affection for this guy as it's possible to feel for someone that I've known as briefly as I've known him. His uh, website, or not website, his YouTube channel is uh, Everything Music. Uh, just look him up, Rick Beato. But I pay a lot of attention to his What Makes This Song Great series, in which he does what brings joy to so many people. He shares his knowledge and even more importantly, his just unfiltered, unrestrained appreciation and enthusiasm and love for music. Uh, he's like the best teacher you've ever had. And because of the internet and YouTube, he's able to reach millions of people. And uh, that's fucking awesome. You know, uh, 50 years ago, he would have been the best teacher you ever had uh, if you were, you know, taking a music class at Ithaca College or Juilliard or wherever he happened to land. Uh, and he would affect, you know, 15 to 30 people at a time. But now he can affect millions. So very much encourage you to check out what makes this song great. Uh, his unpacking of Kid Charlemagne by Steely Dan is incredible. His unpacking of uh, Superstition by Stevie Wonder. Oh my God. And and it's just like, you know, he explains the instrumentation. He explains the way things are layered. He explains the technology. He explains the influences. But a lot of it, he's you just see him getting off on the music. And it's such a great, introduction to that form of pleasure. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. In this conversation, we don't really talk much about music. Um, if if you enjoy this conversation and you want to hear Rick talk more about music or the two of us sort of, you know, batting back and forth different songs and different musicians, go back to the earlier episodes, uh, which are easy to find in the archives at chrisryan.substack.com. There's a search function. Um, this episode... We talk more about life, um, and um, we get into Rick's childhood, the way he was raised, um, his family, um, growing up, I think, outside Rochester, New York, um, and some particularly touching stories about his dad. Um, and then we also talk about Rick as a dad and um, how he's raising his kids and his relationships with his kids. So this is a much more sort of personal 
conversation about Rick Beato, the man, and, and how he got to be that way and how the universe has, um, from my perspective, rewarded him for his authenticity and um, his generosity of spirit. And it's really good to see that sometimes. You know, someone who deserves it is is getting reaping the rewards that, uh, you know, karma can take lifetimes to bring around. And in Rick's case, it seems like it's uh, pretty immediate. And, and that makes me really happy. Before we get into the conversation, though, let's check out a couple of uh, listener intro snippets. Um, I was wondering about this. I didn't know whether to continue doing these um, I think I've talked about it before. I, I get a little self-conscious about, you know, I'm playing audio of people saying, Hey, Chris, love the podcast. Like, yeah, it starts to sound kind of ego driven, um, after a while. But when I was doing the, the workshop in Minnesota, or not Minnesota, Montana, uh, about a month ago, I asked the group, like, do, should I keep doing these things? And everybody was like, fuck yeah, that's awesome. I love hearing from people who listen. It makes me feel much more part of the community. Um, and that's really valuable. So I took that advice on board and I will continue doing this. So uh, here's Caleb, who's hiking in uh, California. Hey, Chris and all. This is Caleb. I'm coming to you from Kings Canyon National Park in California. Um, trying to hit another pass today, but the sky's looking a little dark, so we'll see. Um, do want to thank you for being a voice in my head and a lot of uh, a lot of backpacking. But um, this is actually a reminder to go to places in different seasons. Uh, both environmentally and like seasons of life because uh, I've never seen this particular stretch of trail I've been on without snow and never seen it through the eyes that I have now uh, just from other life experiences uh, and different things pop uh, different things just things feel different you know um, in a great way so go to places in different seasons Anyhow, hope everyone out there is doing good, and Chris, hope to catch you in southern Utah sometime. That's where I spend most of my time. Cheers. All right, thank you, Caleb, and that's a really good point, that nature is different every day, every week, every month, every year. It's changing, and also we're changing, and our perspective on things changes. I mean, I think about that in terms of you know, reading a book that I first read 30 years ago and how different the experience is because of what I'm bringing to it now or seeing a film that I first saw as a different version of myself. Um, and Caleb is certainly right that nature does the same thing. Nature looks different depending on who you are and where you are in time as well as your own time as well as the time of the planet and the seasons and all that. Um, so yeah, thanks for that insight, Caleb. And as far as Southern Utah goes, I believe I will be spending most of October in the Southwest in the van in, uh, 
southern Utah, New Mexico, Arizona, Colorado, sort of depending on how the aspens are changing and how cold the nights are and so on. So sort of following the good weather and the beautiful sights. Um, so yeah, maybe see you down there, Caleb. Thanks. Here is another guy, uh, the hiking Viking, Eric. He's in um, Western Australia, I believe. Uh, you'll hear the, uh, the, uh, the accent and he's got some insights into finding the beauty in the world concoctions and uh, percolations hola chris and all you beautiful tangentials uh my name's eric and i'm uh just calling in from a big hike that i'm doing in the southwest coast of wa um caught up with some old friends i'm in a, a small country town called warpa where i grew up in and um yeah, ran into all sorts of locals, you know. Anonymity is is a gift sometimes, but it's also lovely to to be in a place where you yeah you you recognise and you you feel like you're at home and um yeah we celebrated in a big way last night and I'm fucking hungover as anything. I just got a splitting headache, but I just had the urge to to send this in and to call you and and just put the love out there love to everyone love to 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 you chris love to all the crew everyone that's listening to this and um yeah big big love to the biosphere and 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 the concoctions of nature and and all all of the the percolations of the birds and the emus and everything that's still put together you know we're seeing whales on the horizon down here on the southern ocean and um things are still happening how they should be you know life is thrumming along out here and um you know the beauty of it is when you get a bit of a block away from the 24-hour news cycle you start to sink in with some some super beautiful stuff and and um yeah sometimes when the existential stuff gets a bit big i i try and you know sort of focus out to the macro and and look at the long game you know and life always finds a way and and as shall do life will always find a way um yeah much love from a very hungover eric the hiking viking uh, peace and love. <laughs> Ciao, bye. Okay, that's got to be the world's best response to a hangover. Just feeling loving. I mean, who who has that response to a hangover? I got my head, my head hurts, my body hurts, I feel like shit. Let me just send some love out to the world. Well, all right. Thank you, Eric. Very insightful. Love received, at least by me and I'm sure by lots of other people. Thank you for that. Without further ado, let's get into this conversation with Rick Beato. I'm going to play you out. I've given some thought to what music I wanted to include in this particular episode, given the nature of my guest. And I thought about, you know, maybe some songs that he unpacks on his show, like Superstition, for example, or, or I mean, there are, I think, over 100 at this point. Um, songs that he's unpacked. But I heard 
Rick say once that compared to Bach, all musicians are just beginners or something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing, but his respect for Bach is um, extreme. And it occurred to me that my favorite performer of Bach is Glenn Gould, who has some very famous performances of the Goldberg Variations on piano. And in some ways, Glenn Gould and Rick are similar in that one of the things about Glenn Gould that was problematic in a way for people who were in the music business trying to promote him is that when he played, he couldn't help but express his pleasure at channeling Bach the way he did. And um, it's kind of like George Benson when he plays guitar. You can hear him humming along in the background. Uh, Glenn Gould is enraptured when he plays. And in this particular recording, you can hear him if you listen carefully. This was recorded in 1981. It's uh, Glenn Gould playing Variato 4A1 Clavier. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, um, but it's BWV, which is how box music is cataloged, I guess, 988. Um, it's a very short piece. And I think he really gets to the essence of Bach, which is the Bach can be so mathematical and so layered and so woven um, that you can just get lost in the wonder of how someone could produce music like this, uh, I guess in the 1600s. But if you listen to Gould in particular, he really pulls out the emotion and the profundity of it. It's not just incredibly well put together. There's something very deep and universal to the human experience in box music, uh, which is why I love it so much. So I hope you enjoy this. This is a very brief performance by Glenn Gould. And uh, if you dig it, I'd encourage you to, to get his recordings. Uh, he recorded the same pieces of music over decades. I've got recordings of him playing the same piece of music in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and this is in the 80s. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy this podcast, particularly this episode. Sending out lots of love to you all, even though I do not have a hangover. Talk to you soon. Two, three, check. How's the sound? I was I was doing this with uh, 
a porn star. I forget who it was. Angela White, maybe. And she said, testicles, testicles, one, two, three. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's how a porn star checks the mic. All right. Here we are. Yes. Yes. This sounds okay. This sounds good. Cool. And yours is working. All right. I'm here, ladies and gentlemen, with the great, the one and only Rick Beato. Rick, I was when I was driving over here, I was thinking how how surreal it is. Um, you know, you and I have talked. Well, we've done two podcasts, I think, online. Yep. Um, and we talked a couple of times. You're like the only person, by the way, who's ever called me or, or gotten in touch with me and said, "Hey, let's uh, let's do a Zoom call." <laughs> and and I'm like. What's his angle? What's this guy want from me? Like, okay, I mean, he's cool, so I'll I'll make time for it. But what's he looking for? And then at the end of the call, it's like, wow, he just really wanted to hang out and and yeah. touch base, and that's all it was. And yeah. it was really it was really nice. It you know it must be how a woman feels when a guy invites her out to dinner and doesn't try to get laid at the end of the night. You well, know, I like talking to people face to face. That's kind of you know, uh, even though we grew up talking on the phone. Yeah, but I I do prefer when I'm talking to people, especially when when I meet people, I like to meet them face to face. And this is funny yeah. because I've never met you face to face, but I feel like I've known you forever. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, part of that is we both wear black T-shirts. Yes. Uh, we're born within a month of each other. That's right. Both spent a lot of time in upstate New York, probably in the same bars. We we may have been in the same room sure at the same we time. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But in Ithaca and some gig. Um, yeah, for sure. So, yeah, I was saying uh, the other night I was at dinner with someone and I told her I was going to be doing this with you. And she's listened to my podcast for years and. I said, it's the first time I'm going to meet him. She said, what are you talking about? I thought you guys were friends from childhood. I said, no. <laughs> you mean the, the music producer guy? She's like, yeah, I've listened to those. I thought you guys have known each other forever. I said, no, it seems that way. Well, when, when, we, when, when you walked in here and we, we immediately started talking as if we've known each other for, forever. Yeah. Yeah. Was, uh, kind of a strange. I told you one of my longer, more boring stories. That's not true. Something I would only tell to <laughs> my TED Something story. that only your friends listen to, right? My TED Talk talk. Right. Yeah. Um, but I, what I was saying is I was driving over here and I was thinking about you and I was thinking how, I mean, I, I, you probably don't think about yourself this way, but from my perspective, your life is inspirational because from what I know, and I know there are all sorts of challenges and difficulties and all that that don't, you know, aren't public. And, you know, so obviously there's a, there's a, you know, a filtering or a selection, but from what I know, you're, you have been motivated by kindness and generosity and it has paid off so beautifully it's almost like, you know, if someone just looked at you, it'd be like, wow, karma works. <laughs> you know, I, I watched this thing you did recently. Um, what was it? Was it when you were walking around uh, your studio, maybe, and talking about how you built it out and all that? Yeah. I don't know if it was that or it was something else. I did did one called Nothing Lasts Forever. I did a video called that Maybe that's that. what it was. Yeah. It's kind of about my career. That's what it was. Yeah. 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 And and I was really struck by a couple of things. First of all, the fact that you didn't want to fire your assistant, even though your income was drying up. 
And so you were looking for things to give him to do, you know, to sort of because his family was dependent on this. And, you know, most people, myself included, would have said, I'm sorry, bud, but, you know, this is what's happening. Uh, You know, hope we can stay friends, but I can't keep. But you were like, no, I'm going to figure out some way, whatever, or at least uh, wait until the bucket's really empty. And that led to you making some videos and you're he, him making videos him making videos of other people that are some of which are youtubers now like right my, my friend rat uh right Shull. right and he made a hundred videos with five different and, not, guitar and none of them worked no yeah. the ones of you like you guys did a- i didn't do any of me okay but i produced them. you produced them that's what it i was. told okay. them i said oh you should talk about this you should talk about that and then i would go back into the control room and work on producing people that i had there artists right. that i had there so he's in the other side of the studio doing this right making these videos he made 100 videos we put they're actually up on youtube but i didn't tell anyone where they are i oh. forgot that they were there and one of my friends found them and i don't even know who controls the youtube channel but but they only have a couple hundred views each of them and there's probably about 50 videos mm. guitar teaching videos up there so you guys you guys just plugged away at this you paid for him to be doing all this it wasn't working it wasn't working it wasn't working and then some and then another friend of yours said rick you should you've been teaching you should like do a teaching thing well so rhett who was one of the guitar players who who has a channel with five hundred thousand subscribers now right and he's on your your show a lot right Um, he'll sit in and so rhett was my intern at the time right this is how he got to be doing these videos and and so in the meantime I had this massive viral video with my son Dylan. Well, that was the other thing I was going to say. You, you know, like your generosity and just being a good dad. Like I've seen these videos where Dylan's a little kid and you're playing jazz, or, or maybe it was a photo in Instagram. I don't remember. I mean, my knowledge of you is all muddled together at this point. <laughs> but just, just this kind of open-hearted, like, hey, I want to share music with this little kid, even though he's four months old, and. Mm-hmm. And that develops into this extraordinary talent that he has. And that video goes viral. And that leads into you having an audience. And I just love the way it's all fallen together for you, is what I'm trying to say. I appreciate it. It's 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 funny because you're the... I, I read some of the comments on the first day and no one um, talked about... Mentioned the fact that... Uh, about my assistant, Ken, that 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 was the, it's funny that you noticed that that the story about me or the part of it that that I wasn't going to fire Ken I mean I couldn't do that he has his wife and kids and they depended on me so I sold my gear that's really what I did I started selling things off in the studio to pay to to pay him to do mm, these things right so stuff that we needed i mean anything that we didn't need to make records i sold right i just started emptying my studio out it's awesome and now look i mean what an investment you know if you just looked at that as an investment man beautiful do good what is it do good by uh do well by doing good yeah do well by doing good yeah Yeah, it doesn't always work though. <laughs> well, <laughs> it rarely <try>. does. <laughs> I I I always think of my mom when when 
she would say, um, every time I come home with a bad report card, my, my four older siblings all did really well in school. They all got A's and everything. They're all, all right. good students. By the time you get to kids five, six, and seven, my parents are both working. They're tired. They don't, you know, have time to check our, that we've done our homework. So we didn't do our homework. So mm. then my next older brother, he'd be going to summer school cause he failed some class during the year. So every, every, uh, kid wasn't did my, the last three of us, the youngest did, always did bad in school. How many were there all together? Seven. Jeez. So, yeah, my mom would say to me, she'd always hide my report card from my dad. And it'd be about three quarters of the way through the year. My dad would say, we got a four report cards a year every 10 weeks. My dad would say, Hey, did you ever get a report card? <laughs> and then we'd have to, then I have to show him and then, and 30, uh, 38 in algebra, the first, first marking period, then a 45, then a, you know, and I remember that my, and my brother was going to school for, uh, he was an electrical engineering ma- major, my second oldest brother, Lou. Mm. And he says, um, my dad's like, you need to tutor him and this. Cause if I didn't pass algebra, I'd have to, first of all, you have to repeat it. Cause you have to, you have to pass that. Mm. I didn't want to have to go to summer school and I had to get a hundred on the regents to, uh, in New York state to get, uh, to, to pass it. Cause it would, so it'd be the four marking periods plus that. And I remember my, my. My brother used to say, "I can't teach him. He's so he's so dumb. He can't he can't learn anything." I explained mm. this stuff to him, and and my mom used to say, always would say, "The teachers don't understand you. You're smarter than the teachers." Mm. And I was like, "You're right, mom." <laughs> and she would just give me confidence to do anything. Rick, you right. can do anything. You're so smart. You're and that kind of encouragement and my dad i i thought about this recently chris my dad uh who was a very quiet guy the, the most honest hard-working guy worked for the railroad for 42 years he passed away in 2004 but he was born in 1919 my mom 1925 and my dad when i was in fourth and fifth grade he said um he joined this public country club that was in Lyons, New York. It's 45 minutes from where we live. So he drive, that's where he worked. So he drive every more, more every day, 45 minutes to and back from work. So he's like, um, I want you to come with me to this and play golf at this golf course. And okay. I'm in fourth grade. I'm 10 years old. So he says, um, yeah, so you need to get up at six in the morning. So he wakes me up. I get up. I mean, the rest of the kids are there. They're sleeping, but me. So he takes me. I don't know why it was me. Probably because I drove my mom nuts by talking all the time. He, he says, um, okay, so uh, we ride in the car. My dad doesn't say anything the whole way there. He plays jazz music, and we just listen. We get to his office at this. He he was the director, the supervisor of tracks at this big railroad yard. And we go, and he'd buy me some donuts and some milk at this convenience store. And then we'd go and sit there and, and we'd, and he would get on the phone and he'd yell at people. And I loved it because I thought, Oh, oh my God, he yells at everybody. This is so great. <laughs> it's not and just I would me. be sitting there eating my donuts and drinking milk. And my dad was yelling at people and, and I was laughing. And then my dad would kind of wink, wink at me. Right. So then he said, okay, let's go after about an hour. And then we go, he drive me to the golf course and he give me five bucks and he say, okay, now if there's a twosome or threesome, you go say, Hey, do you mind if I join along? 
and and uh, and then play around, go and have lunch, order at the clubhouse, and then go out and play another round after. Do the same thing, and I'll pick you up at the at the uh, at four thirty here at the practice screen. Okay, fine. So I would go there and I'd talk to adults. Be, might be married couples, adult, you know, three adult guys. They'd be smoking, drinking, whatever. And I'd say, do you guys mind if I play along? No. And so they and they'd be telling stories. They, you know, World War II vets. They'd be telling all these crazy stories. Huh. And I would be there as a little kid, a ten-year-old, yeah, with adults two times a day, strangers. Because my dad knew that I could do that. That's really interesting. Yeah, and so and he trusted me. So two summers in a row, I got up every day of the summer and went and played no shit. two rounds of golf. Yeah, and it was just he wanted you to meet the world. Yeah, he thought That's that crazy. that he thought this would be a good thing for me to to do. And I never thought about it till recently. And none of my other siblings did this, but the act of a kid going up to adults and then hanging out with adults while they're playing golf around a golf is you know three hours or so yeah and i do this two times a day yeah so and then i have to go order my own food (laughs) and 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 it just made me realize these things were prepared me so much for life yeah and uh i i i don't know i just it's such a wise thing for him to recognize even that that's a possibility. Right. You know, how did that occur to him one day? He, he's like, you know, he went, did he play golf? Yeah. So he's golfing. He joins a threesome and uh, gets immersed in the world of those three people for a few hours. And, and a light goes off. He thinks, man, I wish Rick were here. He just thought, well, my dad didn't play for 25 years He when when because he worked all the time and he worked on the weekends and everything. He, mm. uh, he had, always had a couple jobs and um, <clears throat> yeah, seven kids, seven kids, three bedroom house, one bathroom. Okay. Yeah. Nine people. Yeah. So you get used to farts. So, so it was, <laughs> so it was, uh, um, it was, he, so he put go playing golf. He played golf when he retired, but he didn't play, play golf really at all. Mm. When I was growing up, he never did. But this was, I think he just thought it was something that I could handle. And it was a learning experience. I don't know. I, to think of me having my nine-year-old uh, go out next year and yeah. play golf with a bunch <laughs> of strangers. I mean, what? Drop them <laughs> off at a golf course every day? Child abuse. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I I mean, when I think of parallels in my own life, I was much older, but I hitchhiked Mm -hmm. from New York to Alaska and back a couple of times. And people sometimes ask me, you know, like, what's the backstory to podcasting? Like, why are you comfortable doing this or why are you drawn to it? And I think about hitchhiking. I think about the thrill of this car stops and I'm about to get in the car, might be for 10 minutes, might be for four hours with someone and it's the like same thing. rolling the dice you don't know the only thing you know is that they they stopped they didn't drive past right now maybe they stopped because they want to tell me about jesus or it's a lonely gay dude who's looking for that or you know whatever they might have some other motivation but generally i mean they're at least kind 
Yeah. You know, and they have a story too. Story, serial killer. That everybody's got a story. Everyone has a story. And there's there's commonality. Because when I started Hitchhike, it was very educational for me because I was on the road to becoming a real pedantic asshole. I was like hanging out with my college professors and I was going to go to Oxford and I was going to have a PhD by 26 and I was going to be tenured by 30 and, you know, that that's where I was headed. And I had I did this hitchhiking and it was just like, wow, wow, the world is so much bigger Mm -hmm. and more beautiful than I thought. And all these people that I thought I was better than fuck that. You know, I met people who, you know, I've told this story a lot, but I remember this one guy in particular who, I don't know where it was, it was up toward Alaska somewhere, but I, he took me home to his house. I ate dinner with his family. He had this house that he had built himself. Mm-hmm. You know, he knew how to fix the truck. He had these cool dogs that were really well-trained, happy dogs. His wife was hot as hell, and she loved him, and she was cool and funny and smart. And, like, the whole life was just like, dude, you're killing it here. (laughs) And, you know, and I'm sleeping on the sofa, and we have breakfast in the morning. And he says, I'm going to give you a ride back out to the highway, which was an hour away. And I'm like, you're so generous. You're so kind. You got it all together. And I think... What would happen if he had fallen into my life back at Hobart College with my fancy professor friends? Right. They would have dismissed him. They would right. have been, they would have laughed at him. Mm-hmm. And they can't change a fucking light bulb. They, right. And they're miserable. And I, it was a real pivot in my life where I was like, holy shit, like I'm on the wrong road. I'm going in the wrong direction. And it really changed everything. But yeah, I mean, I, I get it that the experience of, I also sold, when I was 10, I sold newspaper subscriptions door to door. That was my first job. That's, that's an amazing thing to have a kid do because to, the courage it takes to go up to every single door oh. is nothing that, that teaches. How much did that teach you? It taught me I never want to be a salesman. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but the interactions, the 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 every new yeah. experience is oh god. Here's another one. Yeah. Well, the problem is I was bothering them. Uh huh. And and you know, of course, the guy who hired me was like, oh, you're a cute ten year old. They'll listen to you, right? You know. Uh, and so I realized I was being used. I realized I hate selling things. I hate trying to convince people to do something they don't want to do. Mm-hmm. I don't give a shit about the weekly bonus <laughs> quotas, you know, like, yeah, I hated it. I hated it. But, but yeah, walking up, it's like public speaking, right? Yeah. You obviously are not uncomfortable doing public speaking, nor am I. But for most people, that's like fear number one. They'd rather get a root canal than talk in front of 20 people. Why do you think, is it, is that why you're not afraid of it? Do you think it goes back to the golf? Yeah, I, I, th- I it never made me uncomfortable. I think because I got used to talking to strangers all the time. I used to hitchhike all the time. Yeah. And that's a, that's an experience that people probably only our age have now because nobody yeah. who hitchhikes nowadays. Yeah. Yeah, nobody here nobody in Ireland it's still quite popular. People hitchhike down to the market to buy milk. It's like much friendlier. 
Um, yeah, but in the U.S., no. Which is strange because, you know, it's getting back to this whole parenting issue. Like, parents are so much more protective over their kids now, even right. though the actual level of danger is much lower. Right. Yeah. So what do you do as a dad? How old are your kids? Uh, Dylan just turned 15. My daughter, Lennon, will be 13 next week. And then Layla's nine. What do you do as a dad where... I mean, I, you're trying to replicate some of these experiences that have been so helpful for you, but the world's changed. I'd let them do their own thing. Um, <clears throat> where we live, it's hard to walk around because there's no sidewalks. Right. And uh, so they can't, we have to go somewhere for them to go somewhere. Right. You know, uh, where I grew up in upstate New York, there's towns and there's sidewalks so that your kids could go out, go out yeah. and do things by themselves. Um, but I just let them, I don't hassle them. My mm. dad, when I'd ask him a question, his stock, stock response was, Rick, figure it out for yourself. I'm not going to be around forever. Mm. And, and I did. That's, that's for people who don't know, that's how you used to say Google it in the seventies. <laughs> <laughs> But my parents were, were very much about us being self-reliant yeah. um, and thinking for ourselves. They yeah. never told us. They never talked about politics. They never talked about anything like that. They never told us what to do. They just let us do our own thing. I never had a bedtime. I stayed out to one in the morning with my friends when I was in eighth grade and ninth grade and tenth right. grade. You know, I just... I played in bands. Yeah. I had a key to the house and I came home. I went to bed whenever I wanted. You had your own room or you shared? Well, I, by the time that, that I was, I shared a room for a lot of it. But then as my older siblings moved out, finally mm -hmm. we had our own, my bro, younger brother, John and I had our own rooms and, and we're actually the only good musicians in the family because uh, he plays guitar. He's a really good guitarist. Is that because and you had a room to practice in? We had think? a room to practice and, uh, my dad retired when I was in 10th grade and my brother was in sixth grade because uh, he was 60 and um, and they could afford guitar lessons and things like that. Uh, and we were the only ones that, that one of my one of my older brothers, Lou, he played guitar some, but uh, I just started playing when I, I told the story when I broke my ankle summer of right uh, of eighth grade, I think it was. And just because there was a cheap guitar sitting there, I had nothing to do. I couldn't get off the couch. So I started playing guitar and that was it. That's one so crazy. Isn't that weird how things life? life? Yeah. So if I had broken my ankle at 12 or 13, maybe I'd be a good guitarist. We'd be re reversed here. <laughs> We'd be jamming together. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally attribute people picking up men, picking up the guitar boys uh, because they want to impress girls. You know, like every time I hear an interview with, you know, some great guitarist, it's like, yeah, you know, Jimmy Page, I wanted to impress the girls, you know, Keith Richards or whomever it is. Uh, but breaking your ankles a better, better reason. I, I guess. just it was it was out of sheer boredom. There was nothing <laughs> to do. There was no Internet. Yeah. I'm stuck on the couch. No walking cast or anything. I got right. my foot up. And uh, so I got that guitar and a chord book. 
But would you have, do you think, I mean, obviously you have an affinity for it, right? Like I've picked up guitars at that age. I took guitar lessons for mm -hmm. a week or two and I was just like, fuck this. This is boring and my fingers hurt and I'm going to go play. Well, I was playing in the school orchestra. I was playing bass at the time. So you already so had I already could some, play and right. I already had dexterity. So the thing uh, about when I started learning, I, so I had this Mel Bay chord book that showed the chord shapes with pictures. So I'm looking at them and then I had, um, I had an America chord book, and I had uh, the the one that has the record that has "Horse with No Name," and that was the first song you ever learned. Was I it? learned a song called "Never Found the Time" that's on that record. Okay, right. And when I I really liked it, and I had had the uh, LP there, and I listened to it, and I was and I leafed through that, and it starts in a G sus, not Jesus, G sus four chord, and uh, and I realized that it wasn't the right chord. It was kind of the right chord, but I was like, that's not what they're playing. I'm playing along with it. And I said, this, it works. It sounds like it goes along with the song. It's the right chord, but it's not the part they're playing. Mm. And it wasn't until I had a really good ear for music. Right. And uh, it wasn't until I went to, I convinced my mom six months later to buy me a guitar, an acoustic guitar. Um, uh, and she, I, we went to this music store together, my mom and I, and I saw this guitar. It was called a Penco 12-string. I'd never seen a 12-string. So I start playing it, and I realized that this song was played on a 12-string. And then I start realizing that Stairway to Heaven had 12-string in it and mm. all these songs I had learned when I start playing it on this. Because in the 70s, 12-string guitars were on everything. Wasn't there some story about your mom the money to get you your first guitar my mom said what well, was a 120 dollars guitar and my mom said don't tell your dad about this because my mom worked in a in a factory and uh and that was a lot of money back then for right. them and um she said just promise me that you'll play it anytime i ask you to yeah uh. And then my brother John started playing it, uh, picked up a guitar right at the same time. So then we both played constantly. Yeah. Were you competitive? Uh, no, but um, when we learned how to, I remember I learned the solo to Hey Joe, Jimi Hendrix. And, yeah. and, um, and then I learned, one of my buddies showed me the pentatonic scale, the blue scale. And you say, yeah, you can just use that and improvise over it. It's like, that's what Hendrix is doing? Yeah, yeah. So I start playing, and I show my brother the chords, and he starts playing. And, and I play the chords for him, and he solos. And then as soon as it's he solos for five minutes, then when I, my turn to solo, he'd stop playing and get up, and we'd get in a fight. Mm. So this happened all the time. He didn't want to play. He never would play for rhythm you. for me. Right. So then my mom would say, my mom would say, okay, what are the chords? I'll play for you. And my oh. mom would play Jimi Hendrix. Oh, your mom played. My mom played basic guitar, and she could play. She said, what are the chords? And I'm like, E, C, G, D, D, A. And she says, what's the pattern? And I played it for her. She said, and my mom would sit there and play chords while I would solo. That's cool. I mean, my mom was born in 1925. That's you know? so cool. And uh, did she know it was a song about killing your girlfriend? No, <laughs> she just. <laughs> it's a pretty nasty song when you listen to the words. Like, what do you mean you're gonna kill her? What you killed her? No, Joe. <laughs> the fuck is wrong with you, man? Yeah, she just knew it kept us from getting in fights. But but uh, I just made. I was telling you, I made my uh, a video for my new signature guitar that's coming out next month, and um, I made the video 
uh, to tell the story about it. And I put a picture of my brother, John in there when he was 11 playing this. I got my first Gibson when I was 15 from, I was mowing lawns and painting houses mm. to make the money to, to save. And then my mom chipped in the rest. I'm surprised um, you weren't a caddy. Yeah, I was not a caddy. No, <laughs> I didn't play golf much after that, those two years, uh, but, uh, uh, I got my first guitar. Then John wanted to get a Les Paul. So I said, my mom said, why don't you give him that Les Paul? And then you get a new one. And by then I was working as a, as a cashier at a, at a Wegmans grocery store. Wegmans. So I would be, I ran on the track team. I played in bands. I, uh, I worked a job. I mean, I was. You're busy. I was busy. So I got my, then I got another Les Paul, uh, Les Paul Custom. And my brother, John, so I found a picture of him when he's 11 years old playing guitar, and he's playing this D major nine chord, really complex jazz chord. And he was already doing stuff like that. We were already doing things like that. And, mm. and we were, I mean, to this day, he practices every day. He plays in a band, in a cover band in upstate mm. New York, and he's a f fantastic guitar player. And we just never stopped playing. We, once we got the bug, that was it. Just yeah. Forever. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. It, you know, I've you and I've talked about this before. Like, I have virtually no envy for anything because I know the price. You know, you never see the price; you just see the benefit that they get from things. Um, but it's such a beautiful thing to see someone communicate musically um, because I've spent so much of my time traveling, right, mm -hmm. internationally, and when you see someone. You know, there's this video. You've probably seen this movie. It's I think it's Rye Cooter in Mali, and mm -hmm. he's like jamming with Ali Farkatore or something. And you know, and it's just when you see that, it's just like, oh, you guys have this language. It's the so universal awesome. language, yes. Yeah, and you can walk into any village anywhere in the world and pull out your guitar and start playing, and people are going to smile and gather around, and some guy's going to show up with a drum, and it's you just have it with you it's it's like being a doctor or something you have this universal universally valuable skill it's it's awesome yeah yeah i really i i really love that um i wanted to ask you i, I mean this is sort of a i don't generally prepare questions uh, especially for somebody like you where i i know it's just easy to talk but one thing i I've, I've wondered guitar is your first first love is a musical instrument yeah. i know you play i played pretty before much i played cello and the bass before that but really the guitar is when i got obsessed with music and it seems like you know you went pretty quickly into teaching at ithaca college yeah. right yeah um and i know you were playing in bands and and you you know is it you who told the story about playing chess with pat metheny or lyle May? my or roommate something? Your roommate. Paul, I brought Lyle. Right. We hitchhiked, actually. Lyle and I hitchhiked from uh, downtown Ithaca, where Simeon's bar was, up to, to our apartment on uh, just off campus at, at Ithaca. These two girls picked us up, me and, me and Lyle. <laughs> and I and my, my roommate, Paul, was sleeping, and I, and I was like, Paul, get up. And uh, I brought Lyle Mays. You guys are going to play chess. He's like, Lyle Mays, I thought... Well, how come you didn't bring bring Pat with you? <laughs> and he didn't realize he puts his glasses on. He's like, oh, my God, Lyle Mays is here. Uh, he thought you were bullshitting. Right. Him. So yeah. he unrolls the yeah. chess thing and they played chess until about three in the morning or so. <laughs> crazy. And, uh, 
That was that's that was so a fun. But what I was thinking is like you went into teaching and and producing and all that. At some point, did you aspire to be in a band? No. You never. No, wanted- no. I aspired to be in a band. No, no. I did aspire to be in a band after teaching. When I, once I hit thirty and I quit my teaching gig because I I I'd gotten. I didn't try to be a teacher or anything. I I, I went to college. I got a music degree because I wanted to learn about music. Right. Right. And, and you were focused on jazz at that point. I was. I was. My undergrad was in classical bass. Uh, okay. My master's was in jazz guitar. Right. So I wanted to do. I finished my undergrad. I was like, well, I want to work more on music. I want to get a master's degree in jazz studies. So I want to focus on jazz now. So I did that. And then I moved back to Ithaca just to hang out with my buddies, some of which were still living in town. Because, you know, people in Ithaca never leave, a yeah. lot of people. Yeah. And uh, then my old guitar teacher, Steve, offered me the job teaching at Ithaca in the fall. Right. And I thought about it. And I was, he said, you don't have to answer right now. And, and uh, I thought about it for a few weeks. And I said, okay, I'll try it. And then I did that for five years. And it was nothing I ever planned about. I wasn't thinking, oh, I'm going to become a music teacher. I was going to go to New York and play in the jazz scene down there. That right. was my plan. Right. I just didn't do it. And you were teaching theory. I taught. I taught improv. I taught. Uh, I taught private guitar. I taught. Um, taught ear training. I t- conducted a big band. Yeah. Taught improvisation. And did you feel like that was distracting you from a path that you wanted to be on? I knew that. I didn't want to be 60 years old. Funny that I'm 60 years old. I didn't want to be 60 years old and still be a teaching there because that's people fall into these gigs and they just do them forever. Yeah. You know, a college teaching gig is a great, especially in a place like Ithaca is yeah. beautiful town to live in stuff. Yeah. But I thought, okay, this can't be what my life is about. Mm. And then I started pl- writing songs with a buddy of mine and we got signed to a major publishing deal while I was still teaching at Ithaca and I took a leave of absence in 92 and never you know didn't really plan on going back but um then I ended up moving to Atlanta and tried to make it in a band and were you hitchhiking or something or you're I was driving around the United States I just had a map of the United States and I was driving from city to city Meeting people, crashing on people's couches, right. kind of like you, Chris. <laughs> I go to Chicago, living in a van down by the right. river. Uh, but I was in my uh, Honda Civic. Uh, I had a, a good car, a Fender Fender Strat, Mexican Strat, and a like a PV Classic amplifier and the duffel bag. That's mm. all. That were all my possessions. It's like and a it, fucking Simon and Garfunkel song. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, so I would meet people on the street. I stopped my car in Wicker Park in Chicago and some woman comes up to me and she's she's like, are you from Ithaca? And I said, oh, I used to, yeah, I used to live there. I taught at Ithaca College. Oh my God, I went to Ithaca College. She's the first person I see on the street. She's like, what are you doing here? I said, I'm thinking about moving here. I don't know anyone in mm-hmm. town. Oh, well, do you have a place to stay? No, I just drove in. She goes, oh, I have a couple buddies that, that go to the art uh, the what art institute of chicago or something uh uh they're art majors and they have room in their loft let me go call them come on back to my place so i go back to her place and her boyfriend's there she introduced me to him and then she calls up these hey my friend rick is here and he needs a place to crash oh tell him to come on over so i go over and i go to this artist loft that these guys have and they're all they're painters and they're doing all this stuff and i crash in our house i spent i don't know probably 10 days in chicago checking out the music scene i was like yeah 
I'm going to try someplace else. And then I went to Denver next. And so I spent, I went to London. I went to Chapel Hill. I went all over the place. And mm. then finally I was like, okay, I'm going to go to Austin. I love Austin. Right. And I stopped to have lunch in Atlanta with my old college roommate <laughs> from Ithaca. And he I'm convinced me to stay. Texas and I stopped in Georgia for lunch. Okay. Yeah. Right. Well, I was coming from Chapel Hill at the time or Nashville. Okay. I can't remember. But I, right. I... I stayed, I mean, some of the places I stayed for a while in yeah. Denver, I stayed for three months. And you were looking like, where do I want to live? Where do I want to live? That was the vibe. So right? after I was a college professor, when I was living in Denver, I was working at the cafeteria at the University of Denver or something. I was, I was a bus boy mm. wearing a hairnet and a polyester shirt. And I, so I went from a college professor to being a, right. <laughs> being a bus boy. A hairnet. That, yeah. That's that's the humiliation yeah. there. <laughs> the hair net. <laughs> that's when you know you got to. And I'm cleaning up after college students, yeah. but you know I didn't care because yeah. it was like that's what I needed to do to make money because I wanted to make it and I right. wanted to have my own band stuff. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, I hear you, man. I I did so much bullshit traveling, and it was like I don't care about that because the point is I'm traveling. Right. I'm financing this yeah. and i'll do whatever to to finance it yeah yeah and and talking about like just your your chicago story and the woman comes up to you and and things just fall into place um and how things are different from our generation and now you know i look back at my life that i'm i'm generally kind of a grumpy guy and mm-hmm. you know I, no. everything's going to shit um but <laughs> My own personal experience has been really, you know, karmically very positive. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it is because of experiences like that, yeah. where you meet some some random person and, and next thing you know, you're staying here. And, you know, the, the story about the guy who took me to the highway and all that. So many of those experiences that make me feel good about life and good about people. Yeah. And I, I, I worry that young people who don't expose themselves to randomness yeah never see that facet of life they don't you know because you watch tv you read the newspaper whatever the internet you think the world is full of homicidal maniacs who are just trying to destroy you yeah um and it's not until you're really vulnerable you're really out there and you really need help and then somebody helps you and you're like wow actually people are pretty fucking cool They, they are they are ninety nine percent of people are pretty cool, and the ones who aren't, you can avoid. That's you, right. You see them coming. That's right. So the world is nowhere near as dangerous as people That's, are led to believe. But until correct. you get out there, you don't know that. Yeah, yeah, and that that worries me about kids coming up. It now. does worry me. It's hard, but how do you create experiences for kids? I I I uh, was driving my my um, son Dylan to get his haircut. We were both getting our haircut. This is probably about. Um, about two months ago or so and the place that my, my friend Charlene that cuts our hair um, she lived she were her salon is in um, down in Atlanta it's probably I'd say 20 miles away and I said to Dylan he's of course looking on his phone or whatever never paying attention I said Dylan if I dropped you off right here without your phone and no money could you get back to the house and he's like, "What do you mean?" I said, "Could you get back to the house? Yeah. Do you know where we? Do you know where we do live? Do you know our address? Do you know where? What part of town we're in?" Yeah. He says, "No, I don't know what part of town it is. I know our address, of course." I said, "Well, how would you get home?" 
I said, it's about 20 miles, so you probably couldn't walk. You'd have to get help. What would you do? And, of course, he didn't want to. He was like, I don't want to talk about this. I want to play my video game or whatever. But then I started thinking about that. So I asked my nine-year-old, Layla. I said, Layla, if I dropped you off in town, I would never do this, of course. But I said, "Um, uh, and I gave you uh, food and and, um, food and water, right? And said, you have to find your way back home. How would you do it? She goes, well, I'd sell the food and (laughs) and get an Uber. (laughs) And I said, Layla, you need to have a phone to have an Uber. And I don't think you can get an Uber when you're nine. She goes, oh, okay. Well, I have to think about it. I sell the food and yeah. get an Uber. <laughs> I thought, it's the beginning of it. That's pretty good. Yeah, yeah. She's I'd set up a business. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, there, there's a TV show. I think it's a, in Japan where they do that. They have okay. like, f- I don't know if they're five-year-olds or something. I've never seen it. I read about it. And they, it's like a reality show, and they'll drop a five-year-old a mile away and see if they can find their way home. But Japan's so safe, nobody's, you know. Chris, how many times were you out in places that you didn't know where you were when you were a kid? A lot. Around? Yeah. All the time, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, we would walk through the forest, and there was, you know, woods around where I lived, and we'd come out and be like, oh, where's this? I don't know. Right. You know, yeah, you figure it out. Figure it out. Yeah, yeah, it's, but but it's it's always a conundrum, and I'm not a parent, so you know when I talk about these things, I, I try to acknowledge that I'm totally full of shit and unqualified. Because <laughs> you know if you have a kid, like the even the thought of something happening to your kid is it's terrifying, terrifying. Yeah, so I'm not dealing with that. For me, it's all abstractions and. You know, I look at my life and say, oh, it worked out fine. Well, yeah, but what about the people who didn't work out fine? Yeah. And and I definitely took some risks that could have gone very bad, and my parents didn't deserve to suffer that, you no. know. But I wasn't thinking about it that way at the no, time. No, and all of our friends did. We all did things like that. We didn't, but, but uh, your parents didn't. It's just not the same it doesn't resemble the same society that nowadays yeah. that it did back then. I mean, there's nothing. Well, and your parents had seven kids. They could have afforded to lose one or lose two. Lose a couple. You know, I mean, <laughs> that's why you have seven kids, right? A couple spares. It's like you with guitars. Like, that's how many guitars does a guy need, Rick? Really? I mean, at least six. <laughs> really? Because, yeah. I, I mean, as I'm a non-musician, kidding. I see you, like, going down your, you know, here's this one and here's that one and this one. But this is from 1953. And it's like, do they one really electric sound and, different? One electric and one acoustic, really. That's about yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, all the pedals and the pickups, like. Yeah. They don't need any of that. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely don't. Yeah. The only thing I can do, the only thing I've ever done in life, I think, that has gone from, like thinking about it to doing it without thinking about it is typing. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes think like if I had put that much time into guitar as I put into typing, I would have arrived at a stage where I could just play without thinking. I mean, is that what it feels like for you? Do you type without thinking? Okay. So this is funny. When I was in 10th grade, they offered typing. Right. And I said, 
when am I ever going to need to type on a keyboard? <laughs> I'm not taking typing. And I'm the only person in my family yeah. that doesn't know how to type. Yeah. Or write, as you were telling me earlier. Or write, yeah. I can't do either. <laughs> With a pen. So, so I didn't take typing. When are you ever going to need to use a keyboard? Yeah. Like the entire, my entire <laughs> life, I've, <laughs> I work on computers. Yeah. And sitting at keyboards. But I still can't touch type. It's amazing. My kids are so fast at it. Yeah. Well, they do it with their thumbs. I mean, that's a whole. Well, different... when they do, they play these games. They'll do these typing games where they type as fast as they can. They'll race their friends. And oh, stuff. really? Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. There's some. There's some. Uh, some cool things like that. But they have to type for for school. All their yeah. assignments are done like that. They're all turned in online and everything. And I think that's about to go because because voice to text is so good now. So good. Finally. Yeah. That uh, I mean, I I don't type on my phone. I just yeah. talk in it. It does it perfectly. Yeah. Where I was going earlier, though, like that whole line of questioning about like, you know, if you wanted to be in a band, I was thinking like as a guy like you who who understands not only music, but you've been involved as a producer with the sort of psychological dynamics of bands and the personalities and the egos and all that. Are there bands that you think of? Where you're like, fuck, I would have loved to play with those dudes. Led Zeppelin, maybe? Really? No, no, no. Jimmy Page is out of a job. No, 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 no. You know, no. he did you ever did you see that that special he did, the three guitarists? With him, Jack White. Him, Edge and Jack White. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. He was like recording commercials and shit. Jimmy yeah. Page. He was like a session, session guy. Yeah. Yep. <sighs> he was like, very smart too. He paid for the first Zeppelin record out of his own pocket. Huh. And uh he he understood the business from being around producers and things like that in right. the studio. So they didn't get destroyed. They didn't no. get parasitized the way Creedence Clearwater or those guys. Yeah. So, so Led Zeppelin because of the personalities? No, no, no. I was, I was actually just joking about that. I never, th you know, I never think about, Oh, I wish I could have done this or I wish I could have done this to me. Life has unfolded just the way that you know if i never did another thing i i said this last week in seattle um and my closing and i might say it in my show tomorrow too that that i used to say to my mom all i want is to have an interesting life mm -hmm. and that's it and i've had an interesting life and i don't need um, uh, you know, I don't need to to be in some seminal band or anything, or be any type of artist, or right. I'm not. I I don't. I I came to the realization that I'll never produce another record again. I'm just not interested in that. I've done it. I did it mm. for years, and 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 that's okay. And it's okay to move on from things in life. Yeah. And um, and that's people. You know, a lot of people get wrapped up in their identities of you know what they've been, and they just to to not be that anymore is is uh, for some people, some of my friends and things. That's the end of the world. But for me, it's um, um, maybe it's just that all the people that I grew up around, they're all gone. All the older people that were born in the eighteen hundreds. I mean, every old person from our family was you know or, or they're born in the early 1900s or my parents you know 1919 1925 and and uh 
and nothing is permanent. And then all the people that knew who they were, that knew them personally are gone. Right. Now they did exist. Right. But within two, two generations, most people are forgotten. Yeah. And that's, and that's okay. Yeah. Cause, uh, that's the way that life is, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's a, yeah. was that dark? I don't know. No, I think it, you know, like a lot of things, it's both profound and obvious, right? It's mm-hmm. like, that's the way life is. That's what you got. And yeah, I agree. It's, you know, like when you said within two generations, most people are forgotten. And I thought, well, and the ones who aren't, who gives a shit, right? right. Like Frank Sinatra doesn't care that we know his name. Right. Doesn't change anything. Right. The course of his life was the course of his life. And all that matters is, you know, the 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 love we make is equal to the love we take or something. I mean, that's right. That's it. You you bring it in, you give it out, and it flows through you, and, and then it's over. And who knows what comes next. But right. there's no point in trying to, like, think about legacies or... I mean, you have kids, uh, which is a beautiful. Yeah, that's your that's your that's your legacy, I guess. Yeah, and and um, you know, I was driving by one of the signs, Bob Hope Boulevard, or something, and you think about Bob Hope, one of the most famous comedians of the twentieth century, and very few people know who Bob Hope is anymore, unless right. you're sixty years old or older. Yeah, and Bob Hope was one of the most famous people in the world. Yeah, but how quickly. <laughs> They're for, you're forgotten. Yeah, I, I think about things like this too. I think it's a function of you know our our age at this point. Mm-hmm. Like you, you, you know, like my my partner is 34. She mm-hmm. just turned 34 a couple of days ago. So mm-hmm. it's a big age difference. And so I'm very conscious when she and I are talking about something like you know she doesn't know who bob hope is right i imagine yeah you know you know chris i i've had a bunch of friends recently whose parents have died now my parents were a couple generate you know were a generation older than most of my friends um but they've been tasked with and they're a couple two of my friends are, are from families just they have two kids they only have one sibling so right. they have to basically go through all their parents stuff and figure out what they're going to keep right and people keep stuff and but who's going to want it after that ultimately you know they start looking through it and they realize that they don't really want any of it or almost none of it and their kids i mean who are they going to leave it to they're these are they're 60 years old and what are their kids going to want it no that's their grandparents but but ultimately stuff that we that we cherish you know, eventually yeah. it's like Elvis memorabilia. Once all the people died that were into Elvis is like, we're not worth anything anymore. <laughs> yeah. No offense to Elvis. I love Elvis, but yeah. Although Elvis never wrote any songs, right? He did not write any songs. Yeah. No. So he's just total front man, front man, great singer, incredible singer. Yeah. Yeah. About 10 years ago, my siblings and I were talking they were saying, Hey, do you want to buy burial plots go in on burial plots in the same area of the cemetery where our parents are buried it's not just our parents but a lot of my relatives are buried in this cemetery in upstate new york and i thought about it i was like i don't know why are you guys all buying cemetery <laughs> cemetery plots well they're on they're, there's a really good deal and if we buy them all together <laughs> and and buy rem- five get two free <laughs> 
And so my dad, I remembered when my dad was, um, my dad died in 2004. So he'd felt really bad for about a year or so. He had all these back problems. He says, he's, every time I talked to him, he's like, my legs feel like they weigh two tons a piece. I don't know what mm. he kept going for all these tests. They couldn't figure out what was wrong with him. Finally, his doctors, uh, they did a chest x-ray and he had lung cancer, but the tumor was on the back of his lung and it was intertwined with his spine. And that's right. what it hurt so much. It was stage four. And the, um, my brother-in-law who's a retired doctor was, uh, at the doctor's appointment when my dad got the news and my dad was like, okay. And on the way home, and my dad used to joke when I'd say, dad, are you and mom ever going to move anywhere else? He goes, Rick, the next place I'm going to live is in the cemetery, right? (laughs) That's the only place I'm moving to. So my dad, um, my brother-in-law could have driven past the cemetery on the way home, but took a different route so they wouldn't go by it. Wow. It's a pretty profound thing. And my dad was really ill. I flew home. My sister called me and told me that that he got diagnosed with cancer. Well, my dad was so ill. It was on his 85th birthday. It was two days later. And he died three weeks after getting his diagnosis. Uh, He he just went, you know, within two days, he couldn't walk up the stairs. And then it was, you know, he lost 30 pounds in the last three weeks, something like that. It was crazy. I mean, Mm. it was really advanced then. And um, I remember him saying to me, Rick, go up in the attic. There's a wallet above the, this is so depression era kind of thing. There's a wallet in the attic closet, slide the door. And above there, there's a wallet and it has $10,000 in it. And that's what you're going to use to pay for, for the funeral. And then up in this filing cabinet is the deed to the the your mom and i's plots this is where the burials my dad is incredibly sick sitting on the couch didn't want to go to a hospice or go anywhere and and this was i want to die here in my house in my i'm not going anywhere and and he had everything planned so that we wouldn't have to worry about anything and that was facing this with no fear i mean it was really amazing and when we took the hearse our our church our catholic church was about one block away that we went to and that we had the service there and and on the way to the cemetery they drove by and they stopped in front of our house with the hearse and we were in the car behind it and they did that as a respect thing and um then they drove the few miles for the for the burial and um and my dad was not scared he he was so stoic and was so practical about about this yeah um and it really made me not fear that watching him do that so um it was a really profound thing to to when one of your parents passes away, the first, you know, first one, my mom passed away in 2016, just before I started my YouTube channel, three weeks before. Um, but uh, to see my friends lose their parents and, and go through that, and then, you know, you have to go and clean out all the stuff, and and you, then you begin to realize, like, what is actually important keeping? Well, pretty much, I go back to the me driving around in my Honda Civic 
anything that you can fit in your car. Is, yeah. That's. And even much, the guitar was replaceable. Even the guitar is replaceable. Yeah. Yeah. I had. Uh, it's funny. I, I, I hadn't thought about this before, but my dad died. Um, four years ago. Yeah. Like four years ago this week. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, a couple weeks after that, the area where I lived at the time in Topanga, uh, I was driving up to uh, Big Sur to mm-hmm. record a podcast with Charles Eisenstein, this guy. And I saw this, all the smoke. And I thought, oh, what the fuck is that? Somebody's like barbecuing that's weird and then i heard i don't someone called me or something and it was like oh did you hear there's a big fire and i had already left and they cut off the canyon i couldn't get back in so i was in the van and all my stuff was you know and i I couldn't get in for 10 days and the fire was all around there and so it was all just a question of which direction the wind was going and whether it was headed toward malibu or is coming back inland and um, so for about 10 days, I didn't know if all my stuff was gone or not. Mm-hmm. And I don't have a lot of stuff. You know, the way I live, I don't right. accumulate a lot. But yeah. there were journals I'd written in for years, and there was some cash, and there was, you know, whatever, this and that. And uh, and when they said we could go back in and that none of the houses had burned down in Topanga, I was disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Because your stuff was fun. Was was fine. Well, cause it no, because yeah, it was like I, I actually would have preferred that it had all burned down okay. for two reasons. One, I mean, it wasn't my house, so it's not you know. And the woman who owned it had insurance, so she would have been okay. But um, but it's like, oh, good, I don't need to deal with that shit anymore. Mm-hmm. I don't need to think about you know those clothes. Am I ever going to wear that again? Am I really going to read those books or you know like all this stuff that's just. So that would that problem would have been solved, and I would have had the story. Right. I would have been able to tell the story about the time <laughs> all my shit got burned down, and, you know, and just the way I live, I value the story more than I I value the stuff. Um, but yeah, and the juxtaposition of that with my dad dying, I was talking with my mom a few months later, and they had been married since they were kids. You know, I think my mom was 17 when they met. My dad was 19. And they loved each other sincerely and consistently. And that was it. Life, you know, like yeah. a couple of swans or something. Yeah. Ironic that I then wrote Sex at Dawn, I guess. But um, and they never were threatened by that, by my research or the way I live, which is very different from the way they live. Um but I remember I was talking with my mom and she was uh, talking about my cousins who were getting one of my cousins was going through a divorce. And she said, I'm so I feel so bad for him, uh, for both of them. You know, like they're it's just so painful. And I said, Mom, you just lost your husband like two months ago. The love of your life. Like, why are you? You know, I mean, the, it's not comparable. And she said, oh, no, what they're going through is much worse. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, your father never stopped loving me. Wow. That's profound. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, what matters? 
You know, what really matters? Like, how, it, it's so interesting to see how people experience things. And my mom's great. I just saw her, you know, I brought you cheesecake. Yeah. Uh, and she's so, she's so relaxed and happy. She's 82, I think. And, uh, you know, I, I said to her, like, is it weird being here? You know, dad's gone. She's like, well, I sleep much better now because if I hear, <laughs> if I hear a noise at night, I don't have to worry that he's fallen down somewhere on his right. way to the bathroom or, you know, and it's very like she's not she doesn't feel sad for herself or like you know i've had a great life i you know had this wonderful life there's this peace um that she's she's got that's really beautiful and i hope i hope you know those of us who live long enough to actually go through the whole cycle uh i hope we all attain that and it sounds like you have already i mean not that we're knocking at death's door but you know it at a certain age you do say oh well okay i see where this is going yeah yeah i mean the uh what's what's the other beetle lyric the the you and i have memories longer than the road that stretches out ahead mm, yeah the two of us you know right. it's the end of the beatles and they're looking back like our all of our, our memories are behind us from the Beatles. <laughs> and they're fucking 27 and they're in their they're 20s right <laughs> what do they know but, i mean that's a <laughs> profound line but uh yeah. longer than the road that stretches out ahead i mean that's just, just and uh you know as you hit 60 and that road ahead is a shorter road uh, and yeah, at I least mean, the maybe. visible part. I mean, I think it's it's a road that like goes over. You know, you can only see till it gets to the top of the hill. You don't right. know what's over the hill. Yeah. You know, uh, it's kind of like being a YouTuber. I, I always say being a YouTuber is like uh, pushing a boulder up a mountain, and then you never get to the top. It eventually just rolls over you. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's an interesting legacy, right? Because you know. Your YouTube videos presumably will exist forever somewhere. Right. I mean, unless the world melts down and, mm-hmm. you know, all the server farms get destroyed with an <laughs> asteroid or something. I mean, you know, and I think about my podcasts. That's like, right. It's weird. Like somebody yeah. 30 years from now could listen to this conversation. Right. It's so strange. Not well, that anyone will. They might. <laughs> 30 minutes from now, 30 days from now. They probably, yeah, yeah, who knows? Right. It's strange. Chris, are you a collector of stories? Is that really the, you know, or are you a, are you a, a, I always love listening to stories. Yeah. That was, that was the, people tell me that I'm a good storyteller. I never thought of myself as a storyteller, but I, yeah. I, I love to listen to stories. And I, I, I love magic tricks. I love listening to stories. And I love people that fly in squirrel suits off mountains. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You mentioned that the other out day. Of their minds. I interviewed a dude I, uh, up in uh, Missoula. Okay. So you've met a person that does, that does stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah. Like One a, in 500. A real big die. Yeah. Well, this guy, our, our conversation, you, sh- you should maybe listen to it. It was really interesting. I forget it. Jeff Shapiro. Okay. And he's got a, a falcon. In his house. Okay. Really beautiful falcon. Um, he was, when I interviewed him, he was in his mid-40s, I think. Mm-hmm. He had a little girl who was maybe seven or eight at the time, married. And so a lot of what we talked about was 
that he he was transitioning away from that. He had bought an airplane and he was taking uh, flight lessons to because he had done like you know uh, hang gliding and paragliding base and base jumping like yeah. all that stuff. Yeah, he did this like ten day paragliding camping trip along the Brooks Range in Alaska wow. where they would just like float along and you know oh get with them and come in and camp and you know no roads nothing and yeah he was sponsored by you know some company he, he's a big time guy but he talked about like he had carried out five or six of his friends bodies you know who had died uh wingsuit or base jumping and and he, he, he was like, I don't want to do it with these young guys anymore because they're all trying to make a name for themselves. They don't have, um, you know, they, the weather's not quite right. They don't give a shit. They, they'll go for it. And, man, I just can't carry another body out of the woods, you know. Uh, he had interesting perspective on on that whole thing. Yeah, I've never, I, I mean, I've done some risky things, but... I, I've always tried to, I prefer to do something that feels risky, but isn't, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Like scuba diving or something. And I don't go deeper than 30 feet. So worst case scenario, I like, (laughs) you know, panic and go to the surface. Um, But it feels your body thinks you're going to die. Have you ever Mm -hmm. done that? I've never done it. No. It's a really weird thing or, or like rock climbing where you're roped in. Your body thinks you'll die if you fall. Your brain understands you'll fall three inches and and you might scrape your knee, but your body's like, no, no, dude, if you fall, you'll die. Yeah. So you get that physical sensation of uh, absolute focus of the mind. Uh, And the same with scuba. Your body's like, no, you can't put your face underwater. Are you crazy? Right. A million years of evolution is telling you that doesn't work. Right. Yeah. So so those are the kinds of things I like to do. But as far as uh, uh, stories, I I, uh, experience life as story. I experience things as narrative. So as something's even happening... I'm kind of like, oh, look how that, you know, like, like as we, at the beginning of the conversation, I, I said how happy I am and, and to know you and how I look at your life and I see how your, your kindness and lack of agenda has led to your success. You know, there's like this unintentionality to it all, but there's also a real justice to it, which gives me a lot of pleasure to to see that you know and when i sort of heard you telling your story nothing lasts forever and your studio tour and all that it's like oh i i saw the narrative of it and saw how you know you could tell this story to people as a way to help them understand that sometimes you do the right thing um yeah so so that's i i like story i see story everywhere yeah it's yeah. probably some something like how you you must experience music like you hear it you see it like I wish I had rhythm. Do you have good rhythm? Yeah. Yeah, I don't. I try to like play along, you know, even just tapping my hands on things. I fucked up on the way over here the, on the radio was uh 
in the air tonight. Yeah, you couldn't even you can't even play the radio right, right? Your rhythm's so bad. <laughs> I fucked up the drum when he comes in. Da 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 da. da. You know the yeah. Phil Collins. I fucked that up, and I was like, God. Man, when you when you when you really when you can screw up your air drumming, that's that, that, that's not good. <laughs> and you notice it. I right. notice like, oh, I'm so. Well, that's white. the first step to be to improving it. The fact that you noticed it. You notice how bad yeah. it is. Yeah. Yeah. Rhythms like anything though. I used to have my students tell them go jump rope to music. Mm. That way you engage your whole body with uh with with rhythm. Yeah, that's play a good music, idea. Play music and jump rope. And you get a workout. And you get a workout, yeah. I'm going to try that. Yeah. Cuz I definitely need a workout and work on my rhythm. Rick, I've taken up enough of your time. Chris, Dude. always a pleasure, man. Yeah. Great to see you in person here. Yeah, and I'm going to see you tomorrow night. Uh this, you know, this will come out afterwards. But what do you do? What what are your when you go on tour? What is it? Are you telling stories? Are you playing instruments? Telling stories, playing instruments, teaching, huh? Song breakdown, right? Something like that. Yeah, right. Q and A with the audience too. That's my favorite part. Ah, okay. Cool. If they ask good questions, that is. Yeah. All right, everybody. If you get a chance to meet Rick Beato, do it. Bring him some cheesecake. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Hey, right, brother. See ya. I hope you enjoyed that. I just wanted to jump in here real quickly and tell you that I'm going to play um, just a few, a minute or so from Riku, who put together the map for tangentially speaking listeners. If you don't know about the map, he'll tell you about it. It's a facile map, F-A-C-I-L-M-A-P at, uh, forward slash tan T speaking, I believe it is. And uh, you can find other listeners of Tangentially Speaking all over the world on that map. So you can put yourself on there if uh, you'd like to be contacted by other listeners. Uh, And you can also find people wherever you are, wherever you're going. Reach out to them and uh, get together. Have a coffee. Have a chat. See what's up. They're good people. I can vouch for them. Thanks. Bye. Hello, fellow listeners. It's Riku from Finland. I'm the man behind this tangentially speaking map project. Uh, I just finished cleaning the map, meaning uh, I removed all the markers that didn't have any description in them and also the ones that didn't have any contact info. So if you added yourself to the map but didn't add any description, Please go back and re-add yourself and don't forget to include the contact info so people who are possibly interested in getting in touch with you can reach you. Uh, Adding your location to the map is easy. You go to facilmap.org forward slash tspeaking.edit. Click add from the toolbar in the upper right hand corner. Click marker. Then click your location on the map and a box saying untitled marker appears on the upper left hand corner. Uh, Click edit data and then you can add your name as a title and fill the description with information about you. Uh, But don't forget to include the contact info. So that's it. I hope you're having a great day. My name is-
name is Carsey Blanton. I am an old friend of Chris Ryan's, and I'm excited to play you my song, Smoke Alarm. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to And what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say For a headstone I don't want to give the end away But we're gonna die one day Your body is an animal It doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest Shut it up, but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say When everyone we've ever known Is heading for a headstone Smoke alarms will dance into the ground. 